Today is a special day in um, life of Christ Church as we ordain and install new elders and deacons. And so recognizing that, we're going to take a, a bit of a, a brief break from our time in John's Gospel account to look to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. So prepare to read that text for us. I want to, I want to frame it uh, for you so that, so that as you hear these words, you, you, you can be guided in, in where we're going in the sermon. There are essentially two sections in my uh, Bible account of this chapter. The, the first section would be verses 1 through 6, and I believe that that has a very specific message for the, uh, the leaders in the church, the, the pastors, the elders, the deacons, um, but it has an implication for the whole body. The, the second section of this passage, verses 7 through 18, you flip that around, it has a specific message for the whole body, but that message also has application for the leadership. And so on a day when we ordain and install new leaders, this passage, this two-point sermon, <laughs> fits well for us. And so would you look with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. This is the inerrant and infallible word of God. Therefore, having this mercy, uh, this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves. But Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed perplexed but not driven to despair persecuted but not forsaken struck down but not destroyed always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies for we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh so death is at work in us but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed, and so I spoke, we also believe, and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God, so we do not lose heart. 
Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This is the word of the Lord. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, this is, this is your word that you have given us this day. I pray that you would, you would open our eyes, our ears, our hearts to, to hear and, and receive this message of the gospel, this message for the church, that we might find hope in Christ and in Christ alone. In his name we pray. Amen. There is a uh, there, there's a symmetry that frames this this whole chapter. We see it as we compare the first verses of the two sections that I've laid out for you. Verse one: Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Paul speaks of this ministry, and and in verse seven. The, speaks of the treasure. We have this treasure. In verse 1, he, he said that because we have this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. And, and then in verse 16, again, we do not lose heart. We want to unpack all of that, this ministry, this treasure, this, this not losing heart. But we start by examining that word we. You heard it in the first verse. You, you heard it again in verse 7. Who is the we? Well, in verse 7, the we, which I believe is different than the we in verse 7. Verse 1, the we, is different than verse 7. You follow me? Verse 1, the we, is Paul and Timothy. Beginning of 2 Corinthians, Paul is saying that by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's giving this letter to the church broadly, and it's a message from Paul and Timothy, and, and I'm connecting that we in verse 1 to the leadership in the church. Leaders, and it has implication for the body. Leaders, we have this ministry. What is the ministry, though, in verse 1 that Paul speaks of? To understand that, we've got to go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, where he unpacks what my Bible titles the ministry. It says they are ministers of the new covenant, the ministry of the new covenant. The new covenant is the new manifestation of the one covenant of grace that, that runs throughout the entirety of scripture. This ministry of grace is a spirit-led ministry of grace whereby the spirit of God applies the work of Jesus Christ, the full saving, redeeming work of Jesus Christ to believers thereby bringing them out of the darkness and into the light of the gospel. And so the ministers of the new covenant have been given by the mercy of God a ministry of proclaiming this grace. It's God's ordained means of calling all of us to experience freedom. What is that freedom? Well, again, to understand the freedom, we go back to chapter 3. 
Chapter 3, Paul defines this freedom as a freedom to look upon Jesus with unveiled faces and to be transformed into His image. If If you missed it by chance, this week is Master's Week, the week ahead of us. So maybe, because I've been thinking about Master's Week, I've I've had golf on the brain, which took me to Phil Mickelson. Phil Mickelson provides an illustration for us here. His nickname is Lefty. Now, ironically, Lefty is right-handed. It's confusing, I know. But he's called Lefty because he swings the golf club left-handed. But there's a story about how he came to do that. See, when Mickelson was a young boy, he would watch his father swing the golf club, but his father is right-handed. So he would stand opposite his father, watching his father swing that club, and he would mimic what he saw, a mirror image. He watched his father swing over and over and over again until he could do the mirror image of what his right-handed father was doing. That's mildly interesting when you watch Phil Mickelson play golf. But there's something about what is going on in this passage, what the freedom is that we have by the mercy of God. It is a freedom to look on Jesus and to be transformed into his image, to, to mirror Christ to mimic him, not in terms of golf swing, but in terms of holiness, in terms of truth, in terms of love. That's the ministry given by God to Paul and all who follow in his footsteps to serve the church. It's a ministry of preaching Jesus so that we can look on Jesus to To be transformed by Jesus. It's a ministry given to Paul and to us by the mercy of God. And so then then Paul, after describing that ministry that he's been given, says, we do not lose heart. Why would he say that? Well, in the context of these first six verses, in, in chapter 4, he says, we do not lose heart because of their unbelief. Paul's preaching the gospel. He's preaching Jesus. And not everyone believed. But he says that their unbelief is a result of the hardening of their heart, that is a result of, of the God of this world and who has blinded the minds of unbelievers. In other words, Paul, Paul's not losing heart because they don't believe. He's remaining steadfast in his calling. Look, every, every minister of the gospel, every servant of the church desires for people to respond. And so as we fulfill this calling, we're, we're called to, to strive to proclaim Christ more clearly to to study the Word of God, to to grow in our gifting so that we better communicate Christ. That is what we do as as ministers of the gospel, as servants of the, the church, but this is what we're not called to do. 
We're not called to alter the message. Because the gospel is true. It stands alone and its power is rooted in its author. So, as Paul says here, we don't tamper with the word of God. To tamper here is to dilute. This is the word used of, of the wine merchants who would, who would water down the wine so as by, by deceit, by, by trickery to, to expand their profits. Paul's saying we're not going to water down the word of God. We're going to remain steadfast in the word. Now, we hear that and, and say, of course, we're not going to tamper with the word of God. That, that's obvious, but, but there is a temptation there. On one hand, that temptation looks like overt ministry pragmatism. I had a recent conversation with with another pastor, and, and he was talking about, uh, his, uh, he, he, he was trying to revamp his building. He, he wanted a new facade on his building. He needed to add on because, as he said, we, we need to attract and keep a certain segment of the population. He was relying on a facade to draw in people. I'm not trying to impinge this, this other pastor, but I am trying to acknowledge the temptation that all of us feel towards pragmatism. Sometimes it's a building facade. Sometimes it is a gimmicky program meant to draw people in. And we understand this. We just built a building. We've been in here less than a year. And as we built this building, there was an ongoing conversation about the beauty of the place. But please understand this. The beauty of the place was never meant to be bait. The beauty of the place was a reality of our theology. God is beautiful, and therefore our worship is to be beautiful. The power and the effectiveness of our ministry does not rest on techniques. It rests on the unchanging, undiluted Word of God. And yet, Techniques are not the only way in which we're tempted to tamper. Leaders in the church and congregations in the church are both tempted to tamper with the word of God by preaching a gospel of, of cheap grace. You know, when we uh, cheapen grace, we, we make the gospel out to be something it's not. Chapter 3 says that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. But cheap grace reinterprets freedom as a license to sin, mistaking grace to mean God is nice to us and ignores our sin. That's a message that most definitely will draw a crowd, but it is not a message that will transform a crowd because it is not the word of God. Cheap grace is weak grace. Cheap grace is throw it under the rug grace. But Jesus didn't come to ignore sin because he was nice. Jesus came to make atonement for sin. At the cost of his very life, Jesus takes sin very seriously. Atonement is grace freely given. 
not to a people who are worthy, not to a people who have good raw materials, but to the beloved of God. And no payment could ever be given for that atonement, and any attempt to repay God would be an affront to the magnitude of our sin. This grace, this atonement, can only be received. But when it is truly received, it is a grace that transforms our hearts. So Paul doesn't lose heart. He doesn't lose heart when they don't respond because he understands that it is only the Holy Spirit who can impart this message of grace into the hearts of sinners. So ministers, elders, deacons, we don't water down the word. We preach an undiluted gospel of grace because it is God's ordained means of saving sinners. And we'll trust in his word. Not in our eloquence. Not in our building facades. Not in our programs. But in the word of God and the word of God alone. Officers, on a day when we install and ordain, this means we are to remain steadfast. Let us not lose heart. Look upon Jesus and be transformed by him. Trust in his word, the word of Christ, not in ourselves. And members of the bride of Christ, this is the ministry you are to expect of your elders and deacons. We do this in this way. We will live into the beauty of, of verse 6. Having the light of Christ in our own hearts. We will give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And by the grace of God, as we remain steadfast in that ministry, it will point us all to the glory of new covenant hope. It's verses 7 through 18. Remember I told you there was, there, was a, there was a symmetry to this passage. Verse 1, Paul talked about uh, having this ministry here in verse 7. He talks about having this treasure. The treasure is the gospel of grace. It's the gospel in which all believers have a share. So when Paul speaks of we in verse 7, he's certainly including himself, but, but he's speaking of all believers, the whole body. Tells us this second point. Point two is directed to all, but it has implications for the officers. We said that the treasure is, is the gospel of grace. But we need to understand something as we look at the gospel as he unpacks it for us in this section. The gospel is not merely that God forgives messy sinners. He does that. He does it in ways that we just cannot behold. But, but it's not merely that. It's not merely that, that he takes our messiness and forgives us of our sins. But in addition, he transforms our messiness. He doesn't leave us there. By the work of his spirit, he's changing us. And the gospel is this. That transformation, it has a culmination in glory. That is hope. That is biblical hope. That glory, resurrection with Jesus is certain. It is sure. And Paul is talking about our hope 
that transformation will one day, someday, come to culmination when we don't merely look upon Jesus, but we stand with him sharing in his glory. That's what this treasure looks like that Paul preaches. It's a treasure that looks forward to glory. But he says here in verse 7 that we possess it in jars of clay. I love this this, this message, I love this verse. If you come to my office, you'll see a, a painting that my wife painted for me of the jars of clay. It's ripe with meaning, but what is that meaning? <laughs> Recently, I was asked, uh, I was asked a question and a follow-up question. The question was, what is my favorite meal? To which I responded incredulously, of course, it's steak. But then I was asked, do I remember the best steak I ever had? And I do. It was our fifth anniversary. It's been a while ago. It left an imprint. We were in another city, and we went to McCormick and Schmick's. It's a pretty good steakhouse. We ordered a filet, and the waiter upsold us to a filet Oscar. I don't know if you know what a filet Oscar is. I didn't at the time, but let me just tell you. <laughs> a filet Oscar, particularly at McCormick and Schmick's, is the perfect steak. <laughs> it is a steak cooked to perfection, garnished with lump crab meat in a buttery sauce, plated to match. And so the waiter brought it out, and I have to forgive me, but it was a masculine plate. I mean, it was substantial. And he, he just gave me this knife that just was created for that purpose in that meal. <laughs> just felt right. If, if glory were a food, that would have been it. You got the image in your mind? Now imagine this, if that waiter would have brought that steak out on a paper plate with a plastic fork and knife, it wouldn't have matched, would it? Now you get a sense of what he is describing in chapter 7 when he says that we have this treasure in jars of clay. What do clay jars do? They break. They're fragile. They're frail. They do not compare to the glory of what it is that they contain. The treasure that we have been given is the glory of the resurrection, but a jar of clay, us, we are jars of clay, we are frail. Why? Why would God do this? Why would he celebrate this treasure in this jar of clay? Because because it reminds us. prevents us from confusing the source of our glory and power. You and I, we're jars of clay, frail and fragile, but the symmetry continues because here in, in verse 18, Paul says, we do not lose heart. Here, it's a we do not lose heart because of our frailty. Where are you tempted to lose heart? Verses 10, 11, and 12, there's a drumbeat 
of death. Ultimately, in verse 12, Paul says, so death is at work in us. It's the constant drumbeat of the fall, of, of decay. Now, broadly, Paul is talking about frailty in the context of the fall, and we can easily lose heart. With our aging bodies, so many in this church today are struggling with disease, with suffering, with grief. And so how can we not lose heart in the face of a cancer diagnosis? It makes no sense with an earthly view. But Paul is pointing us forward to the hope of the resurrection and calling us to look reminding us, as we've already said, that there will one day, someday, be a time when we don't merely look, but that we share. We share in the glory of Christ because of what He has done. It means that today, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of grief, in the midst of disease, we can look with conviction because the gospel is true and the Word of God is unchanging. And yet... We experience the fragility of life in more ways than merely our physical decay. We also experience it in, in terms of relational decay. It's one of the reasons why tampering with the Word of God to create a, a false understanding of cheap grace, it's one of the reasons why it's so dangerous and so empty. Cheap grace in the midst of, of relational brokenness is neither relational nor restorative. It's just moving on. It's letting bygones be bygones. But it doesn't do the hard work of confronting in love and seeking reconciliation that is restorative. It just ignores until eventually it can't. But the gospel of hope is not only a hope of a physical, resurrected and restored body. It is also a hope of a time when our relationships will be resurrected and restored. And so to live now in a fallen world without losing heart is to keep our eyes fixed on glory and to allow the transforming work of the gospel to take root in our lives, knowing that the finish line is not in doubt. It's certain because it depends upon Christ. This is the message of hope for the body of Christ. But it does have implication for leaders within the body of Christ. Leaders. Let us point our people to the resurrected glory of Jesus. Let us remind our people that we have been given the freedom to look upon Him, to be transformed by Him, to share in His glory. Let us do so ourselves. Friends, this gospel is glorious because its power will be displayed in our eternal place with the author. Let us not lose heart as we experience the difficulties of life. The transformation will one day be complete. 
We lose sight of that. We lose sight of that, that completion date of, of transformation. That, that's when we begin to spend our time, our effort, and our money on trying to hide our frailty. Because frailty is just not real glorious, is it? We want glory. We want beauty. We want independence. We don't like being jars of clay. We want something more substantial. Have you ever heard of Japanese art form called kintsugi? Kintsugi means uh, golden joinery. Kintsugi, you take jars of clay and they break them and they put them back together with a, with a lacquer that is, that is mixed with precious metals, gold, silver, platinum. They put those pieces back together and beautifully they are stronger then than they were to begin with. But there's a, there's a beauty in the restoration. You see, it's an art form, but it's also a philosophy of life. That the breakage and the repair... It's not merely something to hide, but it's part of the beauty. It's part of the history of the clay pot. More importantly, the person. It's a picture of the hope of the gospel. That something more substantial comes out of the frailness of our fallen lives as we trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So there was a, a symmetry to, to this passage. There is also a, a unity in the contrast. And it comes to, to a culmination in verses 17 and 18 where I will close. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Father, you are wise, you are holy. You ordain the, the end from the beginning and the means along the way. And so would you give us a, a fidelity to your word, a picture of the gospel, a vision of hope in Jesus Christ. And a deep abiding patience with the certainty of it all because it doesn't rest on us. Do this because in it you are glorified and we are blessed. We praise you and thank you for it all. In Christ's name.